Hi, my name is Peter Bregman, and I'd like to invite you to our upcoming Bregman Leadership Intensive. So I want to share a story to give you an example of some of the stuff that we do. I'm going to change the names. So Joe was a senior leader in an organization, and after one of our debriefs, he stood up and he said, you know, there's something I want to tell you about leadership. And Diane raised her hand and said, you know, every time you speak like that, it distances me from you, it disengages me from you. And he said, I, I, I'm, I'm just telling you, I've been a leader a long time. And she said, yeah, just like that, Joe, that disengages me. And I stopped the action for a moment. I said, look, you know, Joe's in a blind spot, but let's just see if this is real. So there were 20 people in the intensive. We capped the intensive at 20. And I said, who else feels like Diane feels? 19 hands went up. So I said, okay, so there's something here, Joe, and, and let's help you through it. Now, here's what I want you to do. You keep talking. Just keep saying what you were saying beforehand. And everybody else, help Joe out. When Joe says something that engages you, take a step closer to him. When he says something that disengages you, take a step away. Joe, keep talking. And so Joe said, look, this is what I wanted to tell you about leadership. Everybody took a step back. And then he said, you know, I've been a leader a long time, so, and everybody took a step back. Finally, he threw his hands up and he said, I don't understand what's happening here. And everybody took a step forward. And then he said, I don't know what to do. And everybody took a step forward. And through this very visceral, physical feedback, Joe began to learn what he did that disengaged people and lost them along the way, and what he can do through his own courage and vulnerability in order to engage them and inspire them and bring them forward. Everybody in that room had some other obstacle, and we all learned from Joe's obstacle and from each other's obstacles, but we each had an opportunity, everybody had an opportunity to be in the middle of that room and uncover something they didn't even know existed that was holding them back. If you feel you could benefit from this kind of a transformation and you're ready to embrace emotional courage in your leadership and in your life, visit bregmanpartners.com forward slash leadership to learn more and apply for the intensive. Remember, that's bregmanpartners.com forward slash leadership. Don't hesitate because we cap the intensive at 20 people and we're already going through a bunch of applications. I would love one of those to be yours. Okay, now let's head to the episode. Hello, and welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. I'm Peter Bregman, and I believe that the best leaders don't try to do it alone. As the CEO of Bregman Partners, my mission for over 30 years and the mission of this podcast is to help successful people like you close your leadership gaps, grow as leaders, and inspire your team, inspire all the people around you to get great results. With us today is John Rossman. He wrote most recently the book, Think Like Amazon, 50 and a half ideas to become a digital leader. He was the former director at Amazon of Merchant Integration, which is what we know as Amazon Marketplace, which is now at, I believe you said 58% of the revenue of, of Amazon. Units, that's right, 58% of the units, yep. Units, because the revenue, now the cloud services that's right. There's so many other revenue sources there now. Right? A much higher uh, revenue source, but 58% of their units. So um, welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast, John. Thank you, Peter. Thanks for having me. 
So tell us about your time at Amazon. And you know, you you were there at the the essential building up of the marketplace, which is um, has become so big, and also you know was thought to possibly be uh, something that might cannibalize Amazon, right? Because now instead of buying things directly from Amazon. They're going to, in effect, people will buy things from each other. And while Amazon's getting a cut, it's not going to be the same cut they get uh, when they're selling things direct. So I'm curious to know what your experience was leading that business and what some of the challenges you faced as you led it. Yeah, well, that's a big question. Um, so I was at Amazon from early 2002 through late 2005, got to start the marketplace business, also ran the enterprise services business. And as you point out, it was really a business, uh, the marketplace where we competed with with Amazon, the retailer. And I think that the first lesson you can take from that is that um, improving the customer experience always improves your business over the long term, even if that means that short term, it might cannibalize some things that are in your business. So we faced internal resistance, if you can believe that, uh, to the marketplace business at Amazon. Uh, But Bezos just had the confidence that if it was good for the customer experience, over time, it would be good for Amazon, the enterprise. And I think that bet uh, paid off a thousand times. So let me ask you a question about it because it it feels so obvious and at the same time so risky, right? Which is to say, like, of course, if you serve the customer, um, that's going to serve you long term. On the other hand, you know, Amazon certainly was known for losing a lot of money for a very long time. And there's this, uh, you know, almost guttural, intuitive uh, resistance to saying, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to do thing. I'm going to support my right arm in a way that's going to hurt my left arm. And that's just not a smart business decision is, is how we respond to it. And yet, obviously it has been. And I guess my question is, what do you need? Is it as simple as saying, do whatever is best for the customer? Cause maybe what's best for the customer is to just give everything away free. Right. And then that's, what's best for the customer. So how do you, how do you balance that in a way that helps you to succeed long-term? Amazon has been on a unit basis profitable for an extremely long period of time. It really was investing the proceeds from a business into building infrastructure, right? And so, you know, you just got to dive into the the operating understanding there to really understand how Amazon invests. Secondly, is that the marketplace business, although it is 58% today, it took a long time, six, seven, eight years for it to really gain the type of traction that it that it's now seen. And I think that's another lesson, which is staying patient with your bets. Um, but the one that you're pointing to, which is really like the tension between kind of re- results today versus results in the future. And, and at the end of the day, you need both, right? And so it's the tension is what forces you to problem solve into new ways that otherwise you might not get both of those things, right? That if if Amazon, the retailer, couldn't provide the in-stock or couldn't provide the selection that customers are wanting, that, you know, we needed to provide that in some other way. And that by uh, providing competition, it raised all boats. And and, the, and so that's different than, you know, um, I think the, where you can take it to the extreme of, you know, running on an unprofitable business. That was never the proposition. It was about competing to be better. Now, you know, I, I know from organizations that I work with that the CEO um, often is the only one 
who holds the view of the whole company. And that's something that, that I work to try to change, right? Which is to say, you're running marketplace, somebody else is running books, and there is some of that competition, right? Because you ultimately want marketplace to be successful. Like, yes, conceptually, you want all of Amazon to be successful, but if you're the one running marketplace, you want marketplace to be successful. And somebody else wants, you know, I don't know what the other category is. I don't know if it's books, but uh, you know, whoever's kind of running books wants books to be successful. And now you're making it harder for this person to be successful. Literally um, on the ground, like when I, when, when, when you think about your, I don't know who the person was that, that might've had resistance, but when you're, when you're, in that situation, people with people, right? Not talking large strategy, but there's like people and, and you're kind of a threat to them and they're sort of a threat to you. And you're, you know, how do you manage those relationships and how do you manage to step above the self-interest of the individuals in order to pursue the sort of greater purpose that you're all shooting for, but is kind of hard to align with sometimes when it threatens your own uh, sort of personal interests? So a couple of different moves or factors to think about. The first is Amazon's compensation philosophy is there's each individual salary and then there is enterprise uh, stock increase in valuation, right? There was no um, team or individual-based bonuses or incentive structures. And so from from a compensation standpoint, everybody was aligned to long-term enterprise value creation. So that's that's one factor. It's not the only factor that goes into play there. But think about even in, a, in any athletic team, right? Although that you're pulling for the team to win as a player, as an athlete, you're competing for your playing time, right? And so that healthy everyday competition actually does help create an environment where it raises everybody's game. And so I think that's the type of, of healthy internal uh, uh, competition that we had with Amazon, the retailer, that eventually helped us all problem solve and create a better business and a better customer experience. And so, so that um, that view of healthy competition, I think, is really important. And and, and the number one way to really um, do that is a by having great metrics in the business, but b is truly you know having. Um, an understanding that that everybody needs to own the customer experience, and you do need to think about bigger than just you know your business, your P and L, your objectives relative to that. Um, it's interesting. So you you um, you didn't get you got paid compensation wise for your own performance, but that must have been reflected in the performance of marketplace, meaning. You're sort of saying that the compensation is not related to yeah, the team. No, it, 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 everybody at Amazon has a salary, and then there's there you are given a stock grant, right? And that's and it. So, so, that, so that's everybody, it. There, there's no other sub-optimization from a compensation standpoint. That's interesting. That's that's a great that's a great point. And and what you found is that even though you know the the one of the fears of compensation in that way is to say, you know, especially with a company as big as Amazon, that you know, can you personally, individually really impact that stock price versus, you know, you impact the things around you and then you feel like you're being dragged down by other people who aren't impacting it. How, how is that, um, how did, you know, you as a leader manage, you know, some of that anxiety that must have been felt on your teams? Well, you had to be patient with it, right? Um, and, and 
you know, it's really being clear up front. Most of life is about setting expectations, right? And so it really is about setting expectations from the start of the recruiting process to the onboarding about like, this is what we stand for. And so this is the nature of the game. And so, you know, one underlying lesson to take from that is be super clear about, you know, what your mission is, what type of optimization you're looking for, um, how you want people to act in the organization. And, you know, everybody thinks of culture as, you know, this, this essence that helps a attract talent and keep talent. I think a, an important part of culture is is rejecting the wrong type of talent, right? And things about Amazon is it's it is a demanding place to work. They have a strong culture. They don't mean it to be for everybody, and they're unapologetic about that. Right, right. You've talked about changing your mind in Amazon is a good thing. That that you know the thing that we most criticize presidential candidates for, like flip flopping, is actually something that. Uh, at Amazon is revered. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so that's from idea 21 in the book that's called uh, Never Say Never, Don't Let Past Positions Create a Trap. And the essence of that is really your strategies, your beliefs, the things that maybe helped you be successful over the past you know, five, 10 years, those strategies may be the things that hold you back in the future. And so this isn't about like, you know, everyday flip-flopping or not being um, thoughtful in the decisions you make, but it's about being willing to reconsider the important beliefs that you've had in the past for the future. And, you know, Amazon, I think, points, creates some great examples of where they have challenged core strategies and they continue to challenge their own core strategies and they're willing to flip flip their position because it's the right thing to do for now, right? And going forward, not because it's the right thing in the past. So a good example of this is when I was at Amazon, we were so proud and, and so clear about we had a naturally advantaged business model because we were a pure e-commerce retailer, right? No physical store presence. Well, about six or seven years ago, Amazon obviously rethought that strategy. They started to experiment with the Amazon bookstore format. They obviously took a big step forward two years ago when they acquired Whole Foods, but they obviously just kept challenging their own position and, and decided that going that was the right thing in the past, but it's not the right thing in the future. I'm I'm sort of curious about that and also, you know, you sort of talk about being curious and the importance of being curious and disconfirming your own assumptions, which is an element of what you've just talked about. And I think it's one thing to say strategically that's useful and we can understand why and, you know, the times have changed and the business itself has changed. And yet, on the other hand, it's very hard to do, right? It's very hard to do. People get emotionally attached to their own ideas and and it's very hard to disconfirm your own bias. It's why, you know, there's like sort of psychological uh, principles around the fact that we don't disconfirm our own biases. Um, I'm curious about what helped that happen in the culture, meaning, you know, one of them is the things that you said, which is we just hire well, like we hire people who fit in that culture. But I'm curious, what are the elements of the culture that support people you know, like you've defined compensation, but there might be other things that support people to stay curious, to seek to disconfirm their own views and their own biases that, you know, kind of keep people second guessing and flip flopping their own earlier driven uh, thoughts and ideas. A lot of it is through some of the leadership principles, but it really is about um, 
staying humble. And I think that 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 humbleness of we're not perfect, but we're striving for perfection. And that especially as an expert, you run the high risk of of that confirmation bias uh, that that you're you're talking about. And the way to actively work against that is to actively seek out positions that are different than yours. And most of the time when you do that, what you come to is like, I still believe in my position, but at least you've tested it against uh, some new evidence, some new perspectives, right? But every once in a while, you're going to find something that something has changed, my business has changed, a capability has changed, a position has changed, and it's now time for me to to be willing to, you know, do a test, do a trial, and and go about something that prior to that I wouldn't do. But I think the core essence of it is realizing that we do have this 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 natural bias and especially as a seasoned expert you are at high risk and that's really what all of these leadership principles and ideas are about are about for successful people and successful companies and how to not let your past limit the digital leader that you can be in the future. So how much of the culture is Bezos? And like, here's this man who's, you know, defied all odds and, and, uh, and created kind of a miracle. I mean, when Buffett was asked how he missed investing in Amazon, he said, like, what Bezos has created is actually miraculous. And he's not one who tends to invest in miracles. Like he, you know, invests in things that are more predictable and tried and true. So, you know, how much of it is who this guy is? And, and that everybody takes their lead from him. How much of it is, you know, the, the culture of the leadership underneath him and around him? Uh, how much of it is the idea itself? Like, I'm curious about these different elements that really come into play and how much impact a leader has. When I was at Amazon, uh, the leadership principles weren't written down. They weren't codified, right? We were hammering them out every day. It's like, well, how do we think about this? Why did we make that decision? How does that play forward to other positions and stuff? And it was sometime after I, lit, I left that they wrote out the leadership positions. But the, one of the things I remember about was testing, like, why were we making this decision? And, and Jeff had that habit. Everybody had that habit of really testing how we were making decisions and how that played to a bigger, broader set of thinking. At this point, it's, it's, it's the culture. It's way bigger than Jeff. But at that point, it really was about Jeff. But he was willing to learn new things. He, he talks about how he came into this business with a, a good understanding of customer obsession, but he really learned operational excellence from other leaders uh, that came into the organization. So he's, he's very willing to learn uh, new things and live to these leadership principles, which, again, allude to challenging your own past positions and staying humble and and that pursuit of perfection, especially for the customer. And so today it's way bigger uh, than uh, than Bezos. Um, and and it really is kind of those the leadership understanding and these mechanisms for how to get them, which is really what I explore in this book of like, well, that's an interesting concept, but what are tools or principles that you, you or metrics that you put in place to achieve this type of result? That's really what I explored in this book. So give me, give me one of your favorite, you know, I'm looking at this, uh, the magic of forcing functions and, and I'm curious about it. And also I'm curious about like what, you know, there's 50 and a half ideas. And one thing I know about people is that they're not going to implement 50 and a half ideas. 
and you know they might implement half an idea. So one is I want to, I'm sort of interested in this forcing functions and also like, you know, what's a very highly leverageable takeaway that, that you would want to share with people? Yeah. So um, I was listening to one of your earlier podcasts and, and the conversation was about uh, simplifying the number of things you're focusing on and then obsessing on a couple of few. And, and that in itself is a big idea. But the problem with that or the challenge is, is that if you're a general manager, right, you run a business, you don't get to say, well, I'm not paying attention to that set of things over here so that I can obsess on that. Like you are responsible for the whole business and you have to understand the details of the business. So forcing function is a tool or strategy that you put in place and you put in place early in a, in a business or in a project. And if you get that forcing function right, what you know is I'm going to get the right results, but I don't have to pay as much attention to it, right? So it lets you decide where to put your time more importantly. So a good example of a forcing function is writing a super clear articulation. Uh, we use the uh, tools narratives or, or future press releases at Amazon. If you write a super clear narrative of what is going to be delivered by this project? What What is going to delight the customer about it? And you get the exact words super deep, like in a visceral way that so you can taste it or smell it or really feel it. You can give that narrative to a team and say, that's what we need to deliver. And you don't need to pay as much attention to it, right? Because you know the crispness of that thinking that's there. Another good example of a forcing function is the metrics that you put in place, right? Spend more time upfront defining both the daily metrics and the long-term metrics for a team. And guess what? You won't have to pay as much constant attention to them because you know that they're focused on the right thing and they're getting feedback via their metrics to stay on course and build that business. So, th so those are examples of forcing functions. And again, it's a strategy of, I have to pay attention to everything, but I do want to simplify where I put my time and obsess on a few things, put forcing functions in place on the rest of it. And that will allow you to do it while still having the right type of control that you need in your business. Got it. Uh, give me give me another one out of your 50 and a half that you find to be sort of most engaging and highly leverageable. Yeah. So, um, you know, I think every leader would say um, innovation is critical uh, to uh, to our success. But how many actually have a process relative to that that innovation. It, it seems to me like it's always this huge disconnect between we know we need systematic innovation, which means not accidental, right? It happens because of the inputs we put into it. That's what systematic means, but we don't have a process for it. Massive disconnect. So, you know, one of the, a couple of the ideas really push the notion of how to create a process um, of innovation. And one of those ideas is around having a portfolio view of how you make bets in your business. Most companies treat investments that are bets the same as they treat the rest of their types of investments. And so first of all, you have to truly understand, is this a bet or is this just a good scaling investment or acquisition or, or you know, some other type of investment? A bet is something you don't know whether it works or not. And then when you do have a bet, I want to try something. I don't know if it's going to work. You have to govern it differently. You have to make it small so that you can test it and refine it over time. 
you can't afford big bets because you can't afford them to win to 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 not work. So you have to make them small. So that's you know all the minimally viable product and agile methodologies are getting at that essence of how to try something but keep it small. And I think Amazon is a company that does that really well, articulating what the idea is, but then they take it in very incremental manners to that investment level. John Rossman, his book is Think Like Amazon, 50 and a Half Ideas to Become a Digital Leader, former director of basically Amazon Marketplace, and so happy to have you on and shed some light both on the work that you've done and on the book itself. Thanks so much for being on the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Peter, thanks again. Thanks for listening. Here's what I've learned from working with some of the most successful leaders of the most successful companies. Every leader, every team, and every organization has a leadership gap. If you want to become a leader who inspires your team to get things done, then you've got to start by raising the level of your leadership abilities. You can start by taking our free leadership gap assessment at www.bregmanpartners.com forward slash quiz. Then dive deeper with a copy of my latest book, Leading with Emotional Courage. For more ways to become a truly great leader, check out our online offerings, in-person workshops and events, and my articles at www.bregmanpartners.com. Again, thanks so much for joining me today, and thanks to Claire Marshall for producing this episode. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode.